The Protestant Dilemma. The basis for our study is found in Romans, the sixth chapter, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid! How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now let us begin with a statement of fact. It is commonly accepted by most Christians that although we are dedicated to Jesus, we will never get to the place in our lifetime where we will not occasionally sin. Now I want you to think this through. I want you to be honest with yourself. Is not this the accepted Christian norm, regardless of what Protestant denomination you may belong to? Generally speaking, all churches seem to have the same idea that we are going to sin again and again. And this is the Protestant dilemma, that we are all sinning Christians. Now, if we should accept this philosophy, we program the computers of our mind for failure. For this is the devil's psychological deception. And if we accept this belief, we become bedfellows with the devil. Anyone who has made such a decision has never completely renounced sin, for such a one has made provision to accept the idea, once a sinner, always a sinner, until Jesus comes. Now I'm sorry to make this statement, that a vast number of our leaders within the Seventh-day Adventist Church, through their sermons, and books printed on our presses are teaching this so-called easy way of Christian living. But I must tell you that this philosophy comes from the father of all lies, so that he can keep us from getting complete victory over sin and ready to meet Jesus. Now here I must pause for a moment. I must clarify my position in this statement, for I do not wish to give the impression that I believe in sinless flesh theories, for I emphatically do not believe in such. But I do believe in overcoming sin and doing it now. Far too many Christians are stumbling into the same old sin day after day, and this is not the way to the kingdom. The Adventist Church has really never taken hold of this sin problem. And to make matters worse, with the coming of this new theology, we are teaching our people that since we are Christians, Sinning is a way of life. 
The closer we ever came to the real answer that we are looking for was in the short-lived revival of 1888, which was led by two men, Jones and Wagner. If their message from God had been accepted, our people could have been prepared to meet the Lord at his second coming. What is really needed today is a restudy of the 1888 message leading to a correct understanding of righteousness by faith. Most of our people say they believe in righteousness by faith, but so few, so very few, are living the message in their daily living. Let me ask you a question. Is righteousness by faith conditional? Now the answer may be found in the answer to another question. Have we surrendered everything to Jesus Christ? And the emphasis is on the word everything. I believe that chapter 6 of Romans contains the answer that we need to know. Immediately I hear someone say, why, Elder Nelson, Romans 6 is all about the right mode of baptism. But here is where so many miss the point. Paul is not dealing with how we should be baptized, but rather with the subject of living a righteous life. Notice how he begins this chapter, Romans 6.1, with the question, Shall we continue in sin? Now that's the question. Today, Seventh-day Adventists are being taught by a number of preachers, and especially in many books from our presses, that we will be sinning and even committing adultery until Jesus appears in the clouds of glory. This is really what the new theology is all about. The new theology doctrine teaches a number of deceptions, such as the works-oriented definition of sanctification, and it gives the misconception of the nature of Christ and of the nature of sin, and that there was a final atonement made at the cross. It also teaches that we can have an unconcerned view of the judgment, and it leads to a doing away with the sanctuary doctrine. What really matters most, they tell us, is to only believe in God's love. This new theology appears to be Christ-centered, and oh, it's so full of love, love. Yet, the life teachings of Christ concerning obedience is despised. If we really believe in this doctrine of love as being taught, you need not be concerned about what you do in your daily living or how you are carrying on your life, what you are to experience is now a fullness of assurance of salvation, no matter what you do. Thus, God's loving forgiveness 
is taught that he actually condones sinning. Every thread of this new theology leads in this direction to an experience of sinning until Jesus comes. And I am going to prove it to you beyond a doubt. Recently, a concerned member of God's Remnant Church sent me a critique on the book Conquering the Dragon Within. And you can get this book at any of our ABCs. It was written by the present editor of the Signs magazine, our missionary journal. Never have I read in any literature the new theology so blatantly taught as you will find within this book. So we're going to take a look at it. And may I mention to you that I am going to read a great portion of each quotation, for I don't want anyone to say I've taken any statement out of context. I'm going to begin with reading page 19. A number of years ago, so says this editor, I had asked a Sabbath school teacher to resign. This was particularly difficult because he was a retired minister who for a number of years had held quite a responsible position in the Adventist church. The problem was a particular point of view he held on salvation that I felt was incorrect and very discouraging. At issue was the question of how God deals with Christians who sin after they have been converted. The Sabbath school teacher insisted that any time a Christian sins, he immediately <clears throat> breaks his relationship with Jesus, and he doesn't get that relationship back until he confesses his sin before God. Unquote. Now, was this Sabbath school teacher correct in his belief? Was his teachings based on scripture and the spirit of prophecy? Well, let's look at the Bible in the spirit of prophecy and see. I'm reading Isaiah 59, 2. Your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Then in Selected Messages 379 are these words, The least transgression of God's law brings guilt upon the transgressor, and without earnest repentance and forsaking of sin, he will surely become an apostate. Now that's quite clearly stated, isn't it? Now I continue from the editor's book. Page 31. Some of you reading this book may be saying, 
It's true that carry development takes time. But any time a Christian discovers a sin he hadn't been aware of before, he should stop doing that sin immediately. Again, that's a nice-sounding theory, but it does not square up either with the inspired evidence or with the facts of Christian experience." Unquote. Now, it's right here that this author begins to teach that it is not necessary to stop sinning the moment you realize that what you are doing is sin. Page 31, I'm continuing. Quote, My Sabbath school teacher in Texas believed we break our relationship with Jesus, we fall off the platform every time we sin. This is actually a form of righteousness by works. It makes our acceptance with God dependent on our good works. According to this theory, the only time God accepts us apart from our good works is when we first come to Jesus and he forgives us of our sins of the past. Our acceptance from then on depends on our maintaining good works. That's heresy." Unquote. Now really, you know, I have traveled the world and I have seen the pagans and I have seen many of the Catholic folk teach what works is according to their teaching. I have watched as men have carried a heavy wooden cross up to the top of a mountain because the priest said, you must do this in order to pay for your sin. And I have seen hundreds of people walking on the cobblestones on their knees until they were threadbare and there was blood wherever their knee hit the pavement, hoping somehow that they could work it out with God for their sins. Let me tell you, this is not what God talks about in working to take and overcome in efforts our sins. Let me tell you what the Holy Spirit has spoken of through the mouthpiece that he has given to this church. In Signs of the Times, June 19, 1884, are these words. Let none deceive themselves with the belief that God will accept and bless them while they are trampling upon one of his requirements. The willful commission of a known sin silences the witnessing voice of the Spirit and separates the soul from God. Now, that's clear, isn't it? And in Selected Messages 1, 366, God requires the entire surrender of the heart before justification can take place. And in order for man to retain justification, there must be continual 
obedience through active living faith and there's that word that works by love and purifies the soul nothing could be more clearly stated yet notice how this author believes differently I'm reading page 36 if our acceptance with God does not depend on our good behavior what does it depend on aren't we excusing sin if we say we can continue in known sin and still be accepted by God isn't that opening the door to presumption and here I must agree and say amen and how about you but notice how he gets into this good works philosophy page 36 let me begin by answering that question by telling you what is not the condition of receiving justification now maybe I better go back and read that once more if our acceptance with God does not depend on good behavior what does it depend on let us begin answering this question by telling you what is not the condition for receiving justification good behavior good works this is precisely what's wrong with the theology of my Sabbath school teacher in Texas sorry mr. editor the Sabbath school teacher was right on and here you are precisely wrong I read in heavenly places page 146 by perfect obedience to the requirements of the law man is justified only through faith in Christ is such obedience possible again in review and herald March 16 1886 the conditions of acceptance are that we put away secret sins and that we cease to transgress knowingly any of God's requirements but now I want you to notice how this author looks at sin and this is unbelievable speaking of the robe that precious robe of Christ's righteousness this is what he says I am reading page 38 the robe went right over the dirty clothes symbolizing that the robe of Christ's righteousness covers us sins and all God does not require us to clean up our act to overcome all of our sins or even some of them before he covers us with Christ's robe of righteousness Christ's righteousness covers all of our sins now that is absolutely contrary to what the Bible teaches in volume 2 of the testimonies 453 and I'm quoting Christ is waiting to strip them of their garments stained and polluted by sin and to put upon them the white bright robes of righteousness and he bids them live and not die what was that 
First, God strips away <coughs> the evil, the sinful conduct, and then he puts on the robe of righteousness. God never covers sins that we are continually doing. In Christ Object Lessons, page 206, <coughs> your Heavenly Father will take from you the garments defiled by sin. The word is spoken by the Lord, take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. Even so God will clothe you with the garments of salvation and cover you with the robe of righteousness. You see, that's absolutely contrary to what he is teaching. In the Signs of the Times, May 9, 1892, are these words. You cannot come expecting that Christ will cover your wickedness, cover your indulgence in sin with his robe of righteousness. He has come to save his people from their sins. In Desire of Ages 555 are these words. Christ's righteousness is not a cloak to cover unconfessed and unforsaken sin. Then this author sets forth a most damning heresy. Page 47. Unless you understand that a sinner who has accepted Christ remains under justification when he sins, you will not succeed in overcoming your sin. Now, I told you that I was going to prove to you beyond a doubt what this new theology teaches, that you can continue in sin until Jesus comes and still be justified. Let me read it again. Unless you understand that a sinner who has accepted Christ remains under justification when he sins, you will not succeed in overcoming your sins. I want to tell you, that's unbelievable. Page 47. Unless you understand that a sinner remains under justification when he sins. Amazing! Yet we are told in volume 5, page 540, that religion which makes of sin a light matter, dwelling upon the love of God to the sinner regardless of his actions, only encourages the sinner to believe that God will receive him while he continues in that which he knows to be sin. That is what some are doing who profess to believe present truth, unquote. And that's exactly what this book is doing. In Selected Messages 1, 231, there is no safety, nor repose, nor justification 
in transgression of the law. Man cannot hope to stand innocent before God and at peace with him through the merits of Christ while he continues in sin. But this book teaches that God will cover known sin. Reading down further are the words, sins that God will cover. I'm reading page 61. I would like to mention one that I believe he can. I am referring to what some people call known sin. And the issue is this. Does the awareness of doing something wrong constitute a willful sin that God cannot forgive or cover with Christ's righteousness? And my answer is, not necessarily. Unquote. Now notice how he uses an illustration of a drug addict to justify his position. Page 63. If this young man, speaking of the drug addict, knows what he is doing when he drinks and shoots cocaine, but is sorry for what he is doing and wants to stop, does Jesus make up his deficiency with his own divine merit, even while he is doing it? Does Jesus cover him with his righteousness in the very act? I am glad to tell you that the vast majority of Adventists raise their hands in response to that last question too, unquote. What a tragic situation. No wonder Ellen White, looking at our church today, through inspiration, saw chaff like a cloud blowing away where we think we see only rich wheat. Let's see what God's true prophet has to say about such things. Selected messages 1366. But while God can be just and yet justify the sinner through the merits of Christ, no man can cover his soul with the garments of Christ's righteousness while practicing known sin or neglecting known duties. God requires the entire surrender of the heart before justification can take place. Again in Review and Herald, May 23, 1899, Christ imputes his perfection and righteousness to the believing sinner when he does not continue in sin, but turns from transgression to obedience. In that beautiful book, Steps to Christ, page 48, desire for goodness and holiness are right as far as they go. But if you stop here, they will avail nothing. Many will be lost while hoping and desiring to be Christians. And so the drug addict, knowing that he is doing wrong but desiring 
to be accepted by God means nothing until he changes his way. You see, it appears that this author does not accept the revelation from God, but believes that the drug addict can be fully justified in his sins. But let's go a little step further. Listen carefully as I read now, page 66 and 67. At this point, I'm reading, quoting, I can hear someone say, so you mean that a person can be saved in the very act of adultery? Some Pharisees posed that question to Jesus once upon a time, and he seemed quite willing to save the addict. I knew a woman once whose marriage was a wreck. Her husband was physically and emotionally abusive to her, and she felt starved for affection. She succumbed when an understanding man at work began paying attention to her. Within a matter of weeks, she was deep in an affair. She was a Christian. Though she knew that what she was doing was wrong. We slept together eight or ten times, she said. Then I broke it off. It was the hardest thing I ever did but I knew I couldn't live with myself if I kept up the relationship. When she had finished telling me her story, I told this woman, you were a Christian while this affair was going on. Did you feel that God ever abandoned you during that time? Oh, no, she said. No, no, I never thought that. Then the writer says, am I condoning sin? Absolutely not. Or as Paul would say, God forbid. But I say unto you, Mr. Editor, oh yes, you are condoning sin when you brazenly state that this woman was a Christian while committing adultery in the very act knowingly breaking the Ten Commandments. This is exactly the same type of sin that David indulged in. And what does inspiration have to say about it? Spiritual Gifts, Volume 4, page 87. When David departed from God and stained his virtuous character by his crimes, he was no longer a man after God's own heart. God did not in the least justify him in his sins. The terrible calamity God permitted to come upon David, who for his integrity was once called a man after God's own heart, is evidence to after generations that God would not justify anyone in transgressing his commandments. And then there is this statement in Review and Herald, September 4, 1844. All who justify the sinner in his transgression of God's law belong to that class 
of whom the Savior said, Whosoever therefore that shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. They can have no part with him who came to magnify the law and make it honorable. They are deceiving the people with their sophistry, saying to the sinner, It shall be well with thee. When God has declared the soul that sinneth, it shall die, unquote. Really, when I look back in my ministry some 30 to 40 years ago, I never dreamed that the day would come when such a book would come from our presses, undermining the word of God and teaching that you can sin and still be accepted by God. How tragic to teach such heresy. God has warned that such books of a new order would be printed. He warned us that a new theology would emerge, a counterfeit religion, and it's here. You see, the Sabbath school teacher whom the author of this book would not allow to teach anymore was absolutely correct in his doctrine. And this new theology is absolute heresy. In Selected Messages 1, page 381, Let no one say that your works have nothing to do with your rank and position before God. In the judgment, the sentence pronounced is according to what has been done or to what has been left undone. Now, following this false new theology leads to more heresy and more problems. Back to this book, and I am reading on page 99, the problem began when Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. At that time, they broke their relationship with him, and the Spirit left them. Now, that's a real contradiction to what we've been reading, isn't it? Did Adam sin, break his relationship with God, but you and I can sin, and it does not break our relationship? Does God deal differently with some people's sins and differ with others? Let's read on. Page 273. Some Christians become very discouraged when they make the same mistake day after day. They fail to understand that making mistakes day after day is part of being human, part of a normal Christian life. I must stop there. That's a lie. I'm reading on. The issue is not whether we make mistakes day after day. The issue is whether we are seeking victory. So give yourself a break. Cut yourself some slack. God does not demand instant victory of you. And why should you demand it of yourself? Oh, he doesn't? Do you remember that poor woman? 
caught in the act of adultery. There, with tears streaming down her cheeks, she was sorry for her sins. And as Jesus looked at her, he said, Go and sin no more. And that's an instant victory that he was asking her to perform. God says in Romans 13, verse 14, But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Volume 5, page 472. We should never be content with a sinful life. It is an open door by which Satan can enter to tempt and to destroy. This new theology will lead you right into the arms of a Catholic priest. Oh yes, you heard me right. Consider this evil counsel that you find on page 137. I'm quoting. If you want God to remove your sinful desires, one of the most effective things you can do is to find someone who is willing to listen and tell that person about them. This strategy for conquering temptation is so effective that I have included it as one of my major things you and I can do to get a change in our sinful desire. He continues on. I'm reading page 195. A woman raised her hand during a seminar that I conducted in the southern part of the United States in the summer of 1994. Why can't we just talk to God about our defects, she asked. And here's his answer. Quote, because you can't look God in the eye while you're talking to him, I replied. Also, most of us realize that God already knows all about our defects, so telling him about them is no big deal. And telling them to him or her is a humbling experience. Telling God seems so much easier. Unbelievable! You see, this book tells you that you need to talk to some human. And there's the Catholic priest. That's what he's paid for, to listen to the defects of your life. But let me read to you some heavenly counsel that's just the opposite. Volume 5, page 645. I have been shown, and I like that, that many confessions should never be spoken in the hearing of mortals. Why? The same sad experience will be repeated. Do not pour into human ears the story which God alone should hear. Don't go to others with your trials and temptations. God alone can help you. And that settles it for me. Now this brings us back to Romans, the sixth chapter and verse one, in which Paul says, shall we continue in sin? You see, this is the question. 
We have just read from the writings of a book from our presses that put you in the grips of the devil's psychological deceptions. But the Apostle Paul makes no room for sin in his life, not one bit. Don't ever think for a moment that Christ will apply the robe of his spotless righteousness to cover one known sin in your life. Notice how striking are these words of Paul, Romans 6, 2. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? You see, the question really is, are we dead to sin? I believe we had better take a closer look at our surrender. Is it complete? Is it total? You see, sin is sin, but righteousness is righteousness. They are antagonistic to one another. We cannot serve both at the same time. Paul continues, Romans 6.16, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? This takes us back to our question. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? This is the question that Paul is answering in chapter 6. And he uses baptism as the illustration. Some would have you think that Romans 6 teaches the correct method of baptism. But remember, when this chapter was written by Paul, there wasn't the slightest question of the right mode of baptism. The only baptism that they knew was immersion. Sprinkling and pouring was not even thought of until a thousand years later. The method of baptism is not the question of Romans 6. Paul is simply using baptism as an illustration to teach that there are three steps in baptism, death, burial, and resurrection. Notice Romans 6, and I'm reading verse 3 to 5. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized unto Jesus Christ were baptized unto his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism unto death, that, like Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. You see, Paul is teaching us that in baptism we can envision two deaths to compare with each other. One, the death of Jesus. The other, the death of our old sinful nature. Baptism is the appointed time in one's life when we are going to change masters. We symbolically bury the old sinful nature of our former master, the devil, so that we are now dead to sin. Just as Jesus died on the cross and was buried, he was dead. And just as Christ arose after his burial, so we too 
are resurrected to begin a new life. And when we are baptized in the watery grave, we signify a death, burial, and resurrection. But the trouble is, so often we resurrect the sin that was to stay dead. This is the problem. In Bible Commentary 6, page 1075, are some very striking words. The new birth is a rare experience in this age of the world. This is the reason why there are so many perplexities in the churches. Many, so many, who assume the name of Christ are unsanctified and unholy. They have been baptized, but they were buried alive. Self did not die, and therefore they did not rise to a newness of life in Christ. Is it any wonder that Paul stated, Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that the old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin? You see, our sinful nature was to be crucified with Christ and buried in baptism. But sometimes we dig up the old buried nature and serve again the master of sin. And this is why so many fail. We don't seem to realize that our attitude has a lot to do with victory or defeat. Paul left no room for the devil's psychological deceptions. It was not in his computer. He made no room for the flesh. He does not plan on committing any sin in the future. He knows there is no excuse for sin. He makes no provision in his thinking for sin. And friend, we need to do likewise. Romans 6, 7, For he that is dead is freed from sin. Romans 6, 11, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What does he mean by those words, likewise? It means like as Christ was raised from the dead, he no longer was dead but was alive. So likewise, we should reckon ourselves dead to sin, but alive unto God. Therefore, he adds in Romans 6.12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. We should never again respond to that which is dead. This is the secret of victory over sin that Paul was teaching. It was his attitude. He made no room for sin in his life. In other words, shouldn't we come to the place that we would rather die than sin? Rather die than give in to our temptations? The only surrender that Paul knew was a complete surrender. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, he said, I die 
daily. You see, Paul had a burial service every day, and perhaps many times during the day, to keep the old nature down and out. This is what gave Paul the victory, and it will do the same for you and me. We must come to the place where we make a decision that sin shall not have dominion over us. Now, there are several other answers that will assure victory. The first, of course, is our attitude towards sin. Do we see the horribleness of sin, whether it be little or big, when we understand what sin did to Jesus on the cross? When we comprehend also that one sin can eternally separate us from God, we will hate sin as Jesus did. We will not listen to this new theology that teaches that it is all right to sin until Jesus comes, because all sinners who are alive when Jesus comes will be destroyed by the brightness of his coming. You will not be satisfied until every known sin is eradicated from your life, until you have buried such sins, never more to resurrect them. With this positive attitude, you will find power available for victory by doing what Jesus discovered, for he joined his humanity with divinity and gained absolute, total victory. This is essential that we understand the words of Paul. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus had a perfect hatred of sin. And when we see him, we are told we are to be like him. This is not what many claim is trying harder to overcome sin. You see, when you hate sin with a passion as Christ did, you make no provision for sin. The old life is dead and buried. You have conducted a burial service every day, and now you are relying upon the same power that sustained Christ while he was on earth, for you are joining your life with divinity, and God will give you the victory. Back to this book in our final discussion. I read on page 32, and it is absolute apostasy. It is foolish not to anticipate relapse. I am only being realistic about the probability that you will achieve instantaneous, total victory every time you become aware of a new sin in your life. God doesn't demand it, and we are foolish to expect it. Oh, brothers and sisters, that's not what I read in the Bible. I read in Jude 24, that the power of God is available. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling 
and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Heavenly Father, as we end this serious subject, we pray earnestly, God, that you will give thy people victory over every sin, and may we have victories daily in our lives. Help us to be like Paul, 
to make no provision for sin, but to come, Lord, knowing that in you and your power we may have complete victory and be ready to meet Jesus, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Please notice a correction of the date given on the Review and Herald quotation as September 4, 1844. It should be 1884.